Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm best-selling author and co-creator of realeverything.com, Stacey Toth. I focus on being healthy inside and out through real life, food, and talk. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times best-selling author and creator of thepaleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Welcome back to The Paleo View, episode 397. We are doing a follow-up show on COVID-19, answering your frequently asked questions. Um, When we did the first COVID-19 show, it was like two days before we recorded, and I was like, hey, Sarah, maybe we should talk about this, (laughs) because it was happening elsewhere, and we weren't really sure. It wasn't in the States yet, but we wanted to address it, and clearly... In that two-week time, a lot has changed. And so we want to help you feel empowered with information. Um, That is the goal of this podcast. Before we jump in, Sarah's going to have a lot of science. I just want to say, like, especially if you're home with your kids, which I think I read a statistic that 80% of schools are closed in the country as of right now. Um... And so if you're home with your kids, especially be mindful of what you are exuding in front of them. Like this is unprecedented Mm -hmm. for us and kids don't know, right? Like Wesley, especially his age, he's 10, um, thinks that things like the boys were watching a preview for um, Contagion, the movie, and he was like, you know, like getting panicky and because he, and, he's like, I don't want that to happen. And, you know, I'm like, OK, let's talk about what this actually is, how it's actually affecting people. And that sense of calm and reassurance is critical for kids. Like they won't remember exactly what was happening at this time, depending on their age, but they will remember how they feel. They will remember how their parents handled it. And I think if we show calm and we show like a reduction in anxiety, but we also tell them like, we're worried too, but that's why we're doing this, this, and this to be safe, not just for ourselves, but for others, then it just will amplify um, that calm for them. Right? I'm also not sure that now is the time for contagion, outbreak, <laughs> Andromeda strain, reading the stand. Like, I would just say, maybe, maybe that's not the place to uh, escape. <laughs> I mean, if you're a 14 year old boy, that's what you're into right now. You know, like, you know, granted, there are no 14 year old boys in my home. um, But uh, we had talked uh, with uh, Adele, who's 13, about reading The Stand at some point. And then she was like, should I read that now? And I was like, "Um, no, not maybe not now. Let's uh, let's maybe next year. Let's Wesley said after the preview, he he looks at Cole. He's like, really? Too soon, Cole. Too soon. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, I I, I mean, definitely in our house. And it's also my 10 year old. um, Mira is sort of swinging between those two extremes of like, like she's a super empathetic kid, like uh, to to a point of needing coping strategies to manage her empathetic nature. And so she sort of swings between being like really upset, really concerned. And then like 
uh, overly cavalier. And so trying to strike that balance of, look, I don't, I don't want you to worry about this. This is my job to protect us as a family, but I do want you to wash your hands when you come in from playing outside or before you eat or after you use the bathroom. And so just try to strike that, like, I don't want you to be really upset, but I also want you to do these prudent actions that we're all instituting as a family and kind of being in that middle has been, um, it's been a challenge for me as a parent um, to strike the right chord to get the desired behavior without stimulating anxiety. All right. So all of that set, because I do think that um, it is important for us to recognize how we handle things. I, I will say like I've some peers who are handling the situation differently and I see the worry in their kids. And I think that it's not to put shame or guilt on anyone, but I think we as parents especially just have to be extra mindful of what we're putting out there. And it's okay to be scared and fearful and anxious yourself. That's why we're doing the show to ease that for you. Um, but at the same time, like talk about it with your spouse, you know what I mean? Like not mm -hmm. in front of or with your kids or anything like that. So that said, um, it is a dynamic situation. By the time the show comes out in three days, who knows what will have happened. Yeah. Um, but what we can say is all of our shows are based on science. And the show that we did two weeks ago about what this is and where it comes from and what could happen are all the same things, even though it's in the States now and it's affecting us um, as we are today. So the things that we're going to talk about... Um, hopefully will be still helpful um, as the situation progresses. But, you know, my, my biggest thing is, um, and I'm sure we're, we're going to talk about this, but um, we're, we, we people who aren't feeling symptomatic could be, as Sarah described on the previous show, um, still harboring the virus and giving it unknowingly to people. So, that is why we are all in quarantine, uh, even though we're not mm -hmm. sick. And it, it's really important that we understand that. And we did talk about that last time. Not from a, we didn't expect our kids' schools to be shut down and the quarantine to be as big as it was. I don't think anybody expected um, that because nothing like this has happened in the States in over 100 years. But um, it is important to remember that even if you're feeling fine, um, you could be carrying the virus and not knowing it. So that's why we're doing what we're doing. That said. It's, it's also, um, there's this other side of the equation that uh, is motivating quarantines. So um, maybe you haven't been exposed yet. You're perfectly healthy. Um, taking uh, healthy people out of the possible infection pool, um, because there's about a 20% rate of infections, at least based on the, the data out of, China uh, requiring some kind of medical intervention. Um, the idea behind uh, all of this, these sort of shutdowns and social um, distancing and isolation is that by basically really dramatically reducing our possible exposure to uh, COVID-19, we're going to slow the infection rate. Um, without testing, we don't 
we don't have the data that we need to be able to like track exactly where it is and be really targeted in terms of who's on quarantine and who's not like um, some other countries have been able to do like um, uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, South Korea have all been able to, to control coronavirus spread with testing um, rather than these sort of broad uh, shutdowns, which I, I would call a shutdown a, uh, suggestion with help like canceling schools and events compared to a lockdown. Um, there are a lot of European countries on lockdown. Italy was the first. They've been on lockdown for a, a week already. But France, Spain, Ireland, and Denmark all also um, started lockdowns this week. Um, and the difference is a lockdown, like in Italy, you can face several months in jail and a few hundred euros fine if you violate the lockdown rules. So that's sort of the difference between a lockdown and a shutdown. But the reason why um, so many countries, uh, you know, states within uh, the United States or even like in, in Georgia where I am, it's sort of county by county. Um, the reason why we're doing this here is because if we allow the COVID-19 infection rate to continue to grow exponentially, which seems to be the trajectory that we're on, it won't take very long before our medical system is overwhelmed, This sort of the same way it has been in Northern Italy. And in Northern Italy, they're so overwhelmed with severe cases right now that they're having to make wartime-type decisions on who was going to receive treatment and who was not. So knowing that, you know, these three people, all three of them would survive um, if I could treat them, but I only have one ventilator available, I have to pick one. And we want to avoid reaching that in uh, every place else, right? Like we, we can see that and, and learn from it. And the best way to do that in the absence of super, super widespread testing is like, let's stay in our homes. Um, you know, let's uh, not gather in any meaningful way, um, really reduce any kind of, you know, even grocery shopping, the way um, the European countries are doing their lockdown is you're allowed out for grocery shopping, uh, one person from the household at a time. The way China did it is one person was allowed out once per week. And then at one point they actually extended that to once per two weeks. So they're really trying to keep everyone in their homes, if at all possible. That being said, if you are in a public space like a, you know, a park, you could go for a walk outside, maintaining at least six feet distance from anybody else who you you might encounter. I'm letting, uh, you know, my my family were were <laughs> we're going for jogs in our neighborhood and walks in our neighborhood, bike rides, um, and trying to make sure that we're still getting outside time and um, and that you know, really important activity, but not playing on playground equipment, not sitting on park benches and not, um, you know, interacting with people from afar, not, you know, not, be, not being close to other people and maintaining social distance um, so that we can kind of strike that balance. And other than that, we are not leaving our home. And, um, and the, the reason is, is if we can slow the infection rate, we'll spread this out over a longer period of time. Um, but that's good because it means that we won't overwhelm the medical system and so that people who need treatment can get it. That's the whole goal of this. So it's protecting the more vulnerable people in our population, recognizing that some people who don't appear, appear vulnerable on paper are getting severe course of this disease. So there is no way to predict how bad it's going to be for an individual and making sure that we're all 
coming together as a community, figuratively, not literally, so that we can protect our communities um, from overwhelming our our local um, medical care with in, you know a high infection rate. Absolutely. So we were going to do a rapid fire podcast, but as you can tell, we're terrible at that. (laughs) (laughs) Any long time listeners know rapid fire is not our thing. I do want to say there was something else that was time sensitive that happened in the last time that we talked. Actually, it happened since the last time we recorded a podcast, but before the podcast came out, which was unfortunate timing. But I talked about the bills that were happening in Washington, Mm -hmm. D.C. And one of them, not the, so if you remember, there were two. There's one that helps define what the terms are so that there's less greenwashing. And then there's another that gives FDA a little more authority so that they can make, for example, mandatory recalls um, and define, you know, what's healthy and not. That second one was passed out of subcommittee for the first time in 82 years. There was a vote on one of these bills and it passed through subcommittee. So it still has to, I'm sure Sarah, as you were taking your USA tests, no, it has to go um, now to full committee vote, then to full house vote on the floor. Then it goes to the Senate for the same process. And then it has to go through executive approval at the president's level. So there's still a lot of steps left and it's still a long time, but a, win is a win nonetheless. So I did want to give us all a sense of a little bit of joy before we <laughs> jump into the rest of the of the podcast and acknowledge that that happened because I it was just weird timing last week with the show. So um, all right. So I so have the schoolhouse rock song going through my head right now. <laughs> I um, totally shared a link to that when I sent out an email to <laughs> the, like my um, <laughs> my like non-toxic living list to celebrate the win. And I was like, in case you're unfamiliar with the process, like here's a three minute YouTube video. And it was, (laughs) it was totally schoolhouse rock. (laughs) (laughs) All right. So back to coronavirus, um, I've collected um, basically uh, representative questions from the most common discussions that are happening on both of our social media um, and replies that I'm getting to my newsletter um, in response to um, basically COVID-19 risk factors and um, various recommendations that are out there on the interwebs in terms of uh, supplements. And so I, I want to start actually by giving a little bit of a, a quick update on the epidemiology since our COVID-19 podcast only two weeks ago. Um, but there certainly is, you know, a lot, <laughs> a lot more numbers. Um, specifically, uh, the World Health Organization is quoting a global mortality at 3.9%. Um, but I want to once again sort of emphasize that this is still very likely an overestimation due to undercounting of mild cases because almost no countries are actually testing for mild cases right now. Um, South Korea still remains this like obvious exception of a country that is actually um, probably testing at the right level. Um, And so basically all other countries still need to ramp up their testing capacities. Um, And in South Korea, the mortality rate has climbed since... um, the, the last our last podcast, it's now at 0.91%. 
And uh, that's about 10 times higher or, or just under 10 times higher than the seasonal flu. Um, but it is also a lot better news than what the statistic is that the World Health Organization is um, is is quoting right now. But of course, that is just based on, you know, the only people getting tests are the people who are very ill. Um, and so we have a, that probably is more representative of a overall mortality rate in moderate to severe courses. So we're still, you know, looking at the, the updated scientific literature, we're still looking about at about 80% of people having a, what's called a mild disease course. But I want to emphasize here, because I think the word mild for most people is like, oh, I could still, right, a mild cold, I could still go to work, right? That's kind of how we think about it. But the term mild in this context encompasses everything short of pneumonia and all the way down to almost no symptoms. And so you, you can be extremely ill and qualify as mild COVID-19. Um, the difference is basically you are not in a situation where you're going to need medical care. Um, so that uh, 15 to 20% of people who are having what would be called moderate, severe, and critical cases are the people who uh, need some kind of medical intervention, maybe something like supplemental oxygen, um, and then all the way to something like 5% um, of the cases currently, um, or this is uh, still data that's our best data is out of China on this, um, are requiring you know more advanced um support for the, for the respiratory system, which might include something like aspiration, right? So sucking fluid out of the lungs all the way to a ventilator. Um, the, our current understanding now is that even for mild cases, people are typically sick for about two weeks on average. And the severe and critical cases are, are lasting longer. It's three to six weeks. Um, so six weeks to recovery. Um, and so um, I think it's really important to understand that this is something that even when you get the mild case, this can dock you flat for, for two weeks. So um, understand that um, this is uh, not an awesome virus. It's The stats are, are not great, but also the... Um, the, the current right the current estimates of how many people could get this are based on us not doing anything smart and the current mortality rate is still based on numbers with inadequate testing so when you see news stories of like worst case scenarios like remember that that's exactly what those are and we completely have it in our power to make sure that this isn't a worst case scenario um, the people who are at higher risk of having a severe course are still older people. Uh, basically, um, it's the the increased risk starts at about fifty. At, at fifty, you're you're looking at um, based on data out of China, the case fatality rate for fifty to sixty was one point three percent. Sixty and over, it's four point six percent. Seventy or 60 to 70 is 4.6%, 70 to 80 is 9.8%, and 80 and over it's 18%. So unlike the seasonal flu, which tends to um, tends to be more severe for the very young and the very old, this is definitely, uh, the older you are, um, the, the more likely this is to be severe for you, which is why we're seeing, for example, um, that nursing home in Seattle have, you know, such, such terrible, um, you know, high mortality rate is because of exactly this. Um, the other, what are considered vulnerable, um, people are people with 
um, secondary, right, pre-existing conditions, especially unmanaged diabetes, high blood pressure, and cardiovascular disease, as well as immunocompromised people, which we've got several questions about, so I'm going to, like, table that for a second. Um, and I also want to uh, preface some of our questions by saying that what is happening, the, the thing that um, people are dying from with COVID-19 um, is, in most of the cases, it's something called acute respiratory distress, distress syndrome, um, and in some cases, multiple organ dysfunction syndrome or multiple organ failure syndrome. Um, I actually studied these for my entire PhD in my first postdoctoral research fellowship, um, and so I, I, I did kind of want <laughs> to say, you know, I, my research background is in critical care medicine um, and looking at these types of conditions where the uh, immune system is basically overreacting to a very typically bad, like it's a bad stimulus. Like typically the initial thing that, you know, gets you into acute respiratory distress syndrome is still a bad thing. Um, but it's compounded by an immune system overreaction. Um, so I just kind of wanted to uh, to share my bona fides before we get into some of these questions, because I think there's, um, there's uh, a lot of context that we don't have enough data to understand yet. So please keep in mind that all of this is effective March 17th. Yes. <laughs> uh, and I recognize that like our listeners, you need to understand, I did not ask Sarah this question beforehand, so I'm totally putting her on the spot. Do you think that um, it's realistic to say that if you are prone to respiratory infections, such as bronchitis and pneumonia, you would need to be especially mindful during this period? Um, there is currently... No evidence, say, for example, that asthma would be a risk factor. And people with asthma tend to be people who are more susceptible to bronchitis mm. and lung infections. I was just thinking um, about how – sorry, I'm gonna, <laughs> I was just yeah. giving my thought process, which is that before I focused on health, I used to get bronchitis, which even led to walking pneumonia before um, – when I would just get like a cold or whatever, like it would always escalate for me. Um, mm -hmm. And then, you know, later when I was paleo and now when I'm in my, I understand what works for me and mostly follow that um, and focus on other healthy lifestyle factors. I no longer, I like, I haven't gotten bronchitis in a decade. You know what I mean? So I'm just wondering if mm -hmm. that, if you're thinking about a risk factor, um, that to me kind of makes sense from the flu escalating, but I don't, or COVID-19, but I don't know if that's yeah. like factually it, based. At so all. at this, at this point, um, a history of bronchitis or pneumonia is not considered a risk factor. Um, however, some of the things that might contribute to a high frequency of bronchitis and pneumonia may be risk factors. I can tell you that um, I also have had pneumonia uh, eight times, and I have had them have had pneumonia uh, three times since going paleo, and um, three, two, one was right before. Hang on, oh, I'm terrible at keeping track of time. Our listeners know this already. Something like two or three times. Um, the last time being a few years ago. 
And um, I would, um, I am acting myself as though I'm at moderate risk. I have created an entire category between low risk and high risk called moderate risk. Um, and I, um, I am making sure my, we aren't, you know, as I mentioned earlier, uh, we are taking this uh, shutdown and suggested isolation very seriously. We are washing our hands. I am cleaning all the high touch areas in my house every single day, um, putting hand towels in the wash every single day, um, and uh, social distancing and doing all the things to trying not to get it, and then doing all the things that we talked about on our first COVID-19 show, getting plenty of sleep, um, still making sure that I'm getting um, at least 30 minutes. Prefer I'm trying to aim for an hour of moderate activity every single day um, and actively managing stress, which, you know, the, the barrage of news stories about COVID-19 and the amount of unknowns is itself stressful. So I'm working really hard to make sure that I am successfully managing stress. Um, and th those are those lifestyle things. If you go back and listen, those are still our top action items. Um, so uh, at this point, there there hasn't been a paper that has identified um, something like uh, a, you know a history of bronchitis, tendency towards bronchitis as uh, a risk factor. Uh, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease definitely a risk factor. So there's obviously a spectrum here. Um, but I, yeah, I am treating myself, uh, given my history of, of pneumonia and bronchitis, even after paleo and the autoimmune protocol, I am treating myself as a moderate risk and um, have plan no plans to leave my house for any time in the near future. Okay. I appreciate you answering that off the cuff question. <laughs> <laughs> dive back into like your detailed yeah. and thoughtful notes before I derail you again. <laughs> so actually that's, that's very similar to me to the first question, uh, which is, are all of us with autoimmune disease automatically considered immunocompromised because the other risk factor for a severe course of, um, of COVID-19 is being somebody with who is immunocompromised. So uh, I'm starting with this question because it's the good news question. The answer is no. Uh, autoimmune disease does not automatically imply immunocompromise. Um, so what they're talking about when they're talking about people who are immunocompromised, they're talking about people with HIV AIDS. They're talking about people with lymphoma or leukemia or other cancers that are impacting immune cells. They're talking about cancer patients who are undergoing chemotherapy or radiation therapy or um, other therapies that may be suppressing the immune system. They're talking about transplant patients that are on strong immune suppressors um, to so that they don't reject their organs. And they're talking about genetic diseases that affect the immune system, like congenital IgA deficiency, um, which, you know, I I would think that our listeners would know if, if they have a genetic disease like that. Um, that being said, some autoimmune disease sufferers are also immunocompromised. And in general, if you are taking disease-modifying drugs or steroids to manage autoimmune disease, and especially if that's not sufficient to manage autoimmune disease, that, um, you know, your doctor might tell you yes or no, you're immunocompromised because there is, again, there's some like gray here in terms of at what point do you call the need for these immune-suppressing drugs 
uh, immunocompromised, but the immune suppressing drugs themselves are changing your immune function and suppressing your immune system, uh, which will lead very well into the second question of our not very rapid rapid fire. Um, but in general, uh, an autoimmune diagnosis does not mean that you are immunocompromised. Um, you know, I've already sort of explained, you know, I'm considering myself moderate disease risk. I am still taking all of the actions. Um, but I, I, I do want, um, our very large audience of autoimmune disease sufferers to, um, to feel reassured that, um, that diagnosis of autoimmune disease does not automatically put you in a high-risk category. Um, and if you have had great success managing your autoimmune disease with functional medicine approaches and diet and lifestyle, um, your immune system is probably um, uh, well-equipped to handle a viral infection. That doesn't mean you're not going to be laid flat for two weeks. And that's no guarantee that you're not going to get a severe course because we do see severe courses in people who you wouldn't have predicted based on, you know, their, their health resume prior to COVID-19. Um, but I think overall that should be seen as, as relatively good news. I think that's super helpful because while we know those of us who have autoimmune diseases that we are, I don't want to say we're not hundred percent. Cause listen, we're like 140% and how awesome we are. <laughs> like our it's bodies true. are kicking our, our own bodies, butts. but, um, I mean, our immune system does not work the same as everybody else's. So it's important for us to understand, um, how the definition of immunocompromise works. So the question I have then is like general, risk faction and you know is the severity of the disease going to be worse for those of us with autoimmune um so i looked that up because uh i knew it was coming um and looked up there there have been some studies that have looked at respiratory distress syndrome uh pneumocystis pneumonia causing acute respiratory distress syndrome and looked at risk factors. Um, and HIV is, is, a definitely a very high risk factor for this. So there was, um, a recent study that identified, um, about 50% of their acute respiratory distress syndrome patients in the study were HIV positive. Um, the remaining 16 ish percent were transplant recipients, 16 ish percent, um, had cancer and 12 ish percent had autoimmune disease. Um, and uh, and that study was just basically identifying, um, you know, what what are the things that are going into this? I think that um, given that the percentage of Americans with autoimmune disease, right, it's something like one in five or one in six of us. So something like twenty ish, twenty three percent of the population has autoimmune disease. If only eleven point seven percent of us are in this, you know, study for acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, that's probably, again, sort of really good news. Um, there was a, a similar study that just looked at pneumocystis pneumonia in patients uh, who were HIV negative and showed that uh, about a, a fifth of them were people who had either autoimmune or inflammatory disorders. 
Um, but what was interesting was, right, they had very similar other, other groups, transplant recipients, cancer patients. What they actually found in this study was that 90.5% of their pneumocystis pneumonia patients that were enrolled in the study um, had been administered uh, corticosteroids within one month prior to their diagnosis. Um, and um, either systemic, so that's either an injection or oral. And uh, it was equivalent, the average was 30 milligrams of prednisone per day, um, but a quarter of those patients had received as little as 16 milligrams of prednisone daily. Um, and the median duration of the uh, corticosteroid therapy was 12 weeks before the development of pneumonia. And that's where the immunocompromise comes from. Um, so what this study is really showing us is that um, these immunosuppressant drugs that are used to help mitigate autoimmune disease um, potentially are increasing risk of uh, acute respiratory distress syndrome. Um, this is also the case with uh, disease-modifying drugs, DMARDs. Um, so a huge, basically all of the DMARDs have been shown uh, to potentially cause interstitial lung disease as an adverse reaction, um, an increase uh, risk of uh, severe uh, lung infections and lung complications. Um, now, I want to be very clear. Um, we've talked on this show plenty of times about there being a time and a place for medication. And if you are a listener or you're thinking about a family member who takes immunosuppressants, do not just discontinue them. Talk to your doctor. Um, if an immunosuppressant drug is the only way to manage your autoimmune disease right now, if you are in an autoimmune flare, uh, that is almost certainly your best option. But again, talk to your doctor. Um, and I would say, you know, if that's you, um, that probably is enough to consider yourself high risk, um, for a more severe course of COVID-19. And again, I mean, this is talk to your doctor, call them. Don't, don't just go into the doctor's office, um, and, um, make, make a decision in conjunction with your healthcare providers, about what's the best path forward. Um, and, take all of the precautions to protect yourself from exposure to COVID-19. Um, so it's, it's not that autoimmune disease itself increases risk for a more severe course of um, COVID-19. It's that the immunosuppressant drugs um, that are used to manage uh, autoimmune flares or severe autoimmune disease, those drugs themselves potentially increase risk. It's interesting to me. I like that you said call the doctor's office first. We actually have a mutual friend, Shanna, um, from Wellness Unraveled. She was here in um, the D.C. area for the beauty counter leadership team thing that I did. And then mm -hmm. when she went home, her daughter was sick. And she had to um, talk to the, the providers about what they wanted her to do. And because her daughter had a fever, she was treated like she could be carrying the coronavirus. And she talked on Instagram about how that process worked. And like they did a um, online 
pre-diagnosis with her. It was either virtual or over the phone or something. And then they told Mm -hmm. her like, go into this place at this time and do these things. And your provider will be very mindful. Like they have protocols in place at this point to ensure that the people who are coming in for potential coronavirus infection are not going to be spreading it to the people who come in from a broken arm, right? Like there's or the healthcare providers. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's the other thing to consider is just, um, all the other things that we have going on in the medical care system have not stopped. Like people are still um, needing medical care for all of those things. And now we're just piling on. And so when you suspect, or even if you don't suspect, but you have any of the symptoms at all, (laughs) like definitely let someone know ahead of time so that they don't find out too late after that they could have taken better precautions. So switching gears, we've had a lot of questions about cleaners and soaps. Um, So uh, many people have asked, um, like, should I be using an antibacterial soap to wash my hands? And will that impact the beneficial bacteria on my skin? Um, And the, the, and actually, I mean, a similar question that we've received is our natural soaps like Branch Basics, which Stacey, you and I both use. Um, Doc Bronner's, which I also use. I don't know if you use Castile soap. Um, are those as effective as these conventional antibacterial soaps? Um, and so to answer this question, I think it's really important to explain the technical difference between cleaning and disinfecting. So when you wash your hands, you are cleaning them. Um, if you're using an antibacterial soap, you are partially disinfecting them as well. Here's the thing. Cleaning is actually for hand washing is the most effective thing that you can do. Um, so studies that have compared the um, the uh, effectiveness of washing your hands properly, that means lathering for a full 20 seconds, a full minute is better, and then rinsing for at least 10 seconds, um, that, um, that that is actually more effective than, say, hand sanitizer, which is purely disinfecting. So what you do when you're cleaning is you are removing bacteria and viruses by trapping them in your cleaning solution in the surfactant and then rinsing or, or, or wiping them away uh, compared to disinfecting where you're using uh, chemicals specifically to kill a bacteria and a virus. Um, and so for cleaning, um, any natural soaps are effective for cleaning. Um, if you are talking about doing something like washing your hands where you're washing them properly and you're, you know, rinsing them properly, um, if you're cleaning your home, so that means following the instructions for rinsing and wiping things clean, it is, uh, certainly more time consuming than disinfecting. So disinfecting, um, there are certain things in my home that, um, are hard to clean, but easy to disinfect. Uh, For example, um, our cell phones. Um, So for disinfecting, something as simple as 70% isopropyl alcohol or rubbing alcohol um, is effective. But if you're talking about something that requires a disinfectant as opposed to a cleaner, the EPA has a list of disinfectants that um, are at least postulated to be effective against SARS-CoV-2 based on the other viruses that they're effective against. And we'll put a link um, in the show notes to that website. Um, So 
I want to be really clear that there are certain things that you're going to want to clean and certain things that you're going to want to disinfect. Uh, If you're talking about cleaning, uh, I, you know, I have not changed my, my cleaning soaps. I am still using Branch Basics and Dr. Bronner's. If you're talking about disinfecting, that is where the harsher chemicals come into play. I will say um, you can get disinfectants without harsh chemicals. Like I use a seventh generation one um, that has been shown to be effective against the flu virus. So one could extrapolate, but not know exactly uh, based on the EPA list. I don't know if it's listed there or not, but um, I did do a webinar on this yesterday, which is like five days ago for you guys. And um, I'll have a blog post up with it and going over the um, less harmful for your health, but still effective products that you can use in your home. The problem is a lot of these are sold out in a lot of places. So Mm -hmm. it's a matter of like also making sure that I'm referencing things that you can still find. The one thing that I would say just as a general tip is that um, Amazon partners with Whole Foods at this point, and a lot of Whole Foods are getting local deliveries that they already had scheduled for a lot of these products. And so you can place orders like, and there's, there's no like kickback or anything for us on this. I wish there was, I was like, how many people have like referred to this? I wish there was something, but um, you can place an order like with Amazon through the Whole Foods website, for example, the seventh generation disinfecting wipes um, based on your zip code. And they have like the two hour delivery to your home, which is amazing. So um, I have a blog post up with different tips like that, different websites that still have certain kinds of products in site that are, not health harming. So for example, I think a lot of people want to use bleach on a lot of things because they think that that's going to be the most effective. Um, But it's not any more effective than like soap at removing these things. So you don't want to introduce things like, you know, potential chloroform reaction or whatever. Like if you've been using safer cleaning products for a long time and now you're just thinking to yourself like, oh my gosh, is this enough? Um, The answer is most likely yes. And you can definitely go to um, the CDC's website actually has some good information on why soap is still effective, just as effective, they say, as, um, for example, using something with triclosan, which um, has been shown to have negative reactions. So you don't need to jump into these quote unquote harsh chemicals for it to be effective. Like we can still be confident that when we're following, like Sarah said, the instructions for use, then we're having the results that we want. Yeah. Um, I, I do want to, um, to add to the conversation, like, again, I want to emphasize that in most cases, soap is going to be fine. So if it is, you know, soapy, (laughs) like you can get soaps that are completely free of all of these different kinds of harsh chemicals, uh, like the brands we've already mentioned, um, that soap is going to be fine. If you are in a situation where you need to um, disinfect, I do think there are I, I do want to just add that there are a lot of uh, products out there that claim the ability to disinfect that have not actually been tested properly. Um, so I, I just want to kind of add a, a buyer beware um, uh, addition there. And then, you know, second Stacy, the CDC as 
um, the best resource out there for right now, keeping up to date lists on um, what what are the best uh, disinfectants to use if you're in a situation where a cleaner is not accessible or usable. Absolutely. And that goes to that whole, like, people can make whatever claims they want on their labels. Mm -hmm. No backup at all. Um, We actually had a podcast a long time ago on essential oils. um, And I got a lot of questions about essential oils lately. I would encourage people, if you're thinking about using them, to go listen to that podcast. Um, We did reference the On Guard blend as being one that there is a scientific backup that shows um, that it does have an effect on, again, the flu virus. Like there isn't information on COVID-19 because it's new, right? But one could assume that if it's affecting flu, um, it could. Actually, I'm not, I I don't, (laughs) I want to push back on that a little bit. Okay. Um, Because influenza is a different family of viruses and, um, and uh, even its its structure is fairly different. So I'm I you know some things are really strong antivirals and they're they're just you know like a broad spectrum antibiotic, but it's a broad spectrum antiviral. But some things are much more specific. And um, you know I know we don't have enough information to go on. I've been trying as much as I can um, when I'm doing my research to look at not influenza, but other coronaviruses. So there are four known coronaviruses that cause the common cold. And also, uh, SARS and MERS are caused by coronaviruses. Um, the 2002 SARS outbreak is actually the most similar, uh, coronavirus to the SARS-CoV-2 that's causing COVID-19. So I kind of, you know, like we only know what we know and we have to make decisions with, just the information that we have at hand until, you know, more research can be published. I mean, what's great is that the um, research on the novel coronavirus is all being expedited to publication. So, um, you know, these peer-reviewed journals are doing as much as they can to still peer review, um, but get that information out into the public as as efficiently as possible. Um, But I think that it's not... I would be leery to say that because something works for the flu, it's obviously going to work for COVID-19. And and that doesn't mean it won't. I just, I think that depending on the context, that's not necessarily a leap of logic that we can make. Totally fair. We're, I'm, I'm going to agree and also say, it wasn't my intent to say that it necessarily will work, but that okay. it can potentially work. Um so my whole point was just that there is an on-guard foaming hand soap, um, which also has soap in it. So that's uh-huh. what we've been using because you get double benefit from my perspective because it's going to kill at least the flu virus. <laughs> because that's still, still out there. Yep. There is someone in my neighborhood who has the flu and is like traumatized because they they know they don't have COVID-19. They you know have been to a doctor, but then mm-hmm. they're also like you know, feeling, um, worried. <laughs> right? right. So anyway, the, the flu is still out there. All that kind of stuff is also still out there. So that's what our family uses during the flu season for what it's worth. Um, okay. Moving, <laughs> moving, moving on, on our non rapid, rapid fire. Um, so, uh, the next question that I wanted to answer, and I've had many of 
seen many of these online is um, like, you know, what can we take? What, what can we take if we do get COVID-19 to help us feel better? And especially in the context of autoimmune disease, where uh, autoimmune disease sufferers um, avoid things like NSAIDs um, because of the increased intestinal permeability that they cause. Um, so there's a, a lot of medications that, you know, uh, our AIP listeners are, are used to trying to avoid. Okay, so what happens if I get COVID-19? Um you know, if you have a moderate to severe case, call your doctor and uh, follow all of their what their recommendations are. If you're in that 80% to uh, of mild cases, re- recalling that mild does not necessarily mean that you're going to be walking around feeling great. Um, you know, rest, hydration, all of those things are still your your primary strategies for getting better. If you have a fever. Um, you know, the, the current understanding is that a fever is actually a really important part of your body's response to fighting off an infection. And that there are, there's this whole family of proteins called heat shock proteins that are stimulated by a fever that are really, really important immune modulators. Um, and some of them are directly involved in the, um, specific fighting of a a virus or bacteria. So uh, if you have a fever that is not dangerously high, it's probably better not to take anything. But here is the the note of caution. A high fever, um, this is sort of typically above 104 degrees Fahrenheit. However, please note that there are susceptible, susceptible individuals. You probably already know if this applies to you, but high fevers can cause seizures. And there are some people who can have seizures with much lower fevers. And you, you probably already know if that's you. Um, so if you have a high fever, um, there's some um, some doctors who are recommending that people with COVID-19 not take NSAIDs because they can suppress some aspects of the immune system and are suggesting acetaminophen or Tylenol for fever control. Um, there's also natural ways to control a fever, some, like a lukewarm bath, cool compresses, like definitely avoid things like huddling under covers. Um, it feels right because you feel cold when you have a fever, but it's actually going to help lock in heat and drive your fever up higher. Um, so if your fever is not in this danger, danger zone, best to ride it out. If your fever is sustained, so a very long sustained fever, you can start to hit increased risk of seizures, even if it's not hitting 104. So if you've had a fever for a couple of days, um, or if you're dipping up to, to 104, if you're getting that really high fever, um, it, it is important to intervene and try to bring it down. Call your doctor, call your doctor, call your doctor. Um, call your doctor if you're worried about whether or not your fever is too high. Call your doctor if you can't get your fever down. Um, and that's that's really important. So fever being one of the, the most common symptoms, um, that is, I think, how that – that is what the science would say in terms of, of what's the best way to deal with it. Um sort of natural approaches to the uh, cough and the lung symptoms, which is the you know second most common symptom of COVID-19. Um, if your cough hurts, that is probably, um, like if it hurts in your chest when you're coughing, call your doctor. Um, so b- before, before we get into like ways to control the cough, 
if it's a painful cough, um, that could mean that you're tipping into that pneumonia side. So that is a call your doctor symptom. Um, uh, so <laughs> I want to make sure that's really clear. Um, if any doubts, if you think you have COVID-19, don't, don't be afraid to call your doctor. Don't feel like you need to be the hero and ride everything out at home. Um, and also I think any symptom relief that is going to improve sleep is, is overall going to be beneficial. Um, but what I'm trying to, to give you is sort of the, uh, the safest options, especially in the context of our AIP listeners. So there's actually been some really good studies showing that honey is a surprisingly good cough suppressant. Uh, it's even recommended by the Mayo Clinic as a cough suppressant. Um, and you can either do something like add it to herbal tea, in which case you're getting uh, all the added antioxidants from the herbal tea, or you can just take a spoonful. The nice thing about honey as a cough suppressant is there's like not a maximum dose, right? So you can really just take it as needed. You don't have to like take a teaspoon and wait four hours before you take another teaspoon. Um, I also, right. <laughs> Meanwhile, you don't need to like have the whole Costco size container for it to be effective either, which is what my kids would do if, um, <laughs> they were like, Take if I was like, cough. there's, there's <laughs> no limitation on dose. I need more honey. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, there's also, um, some good evidence that eucalyptus oil, which not straight, needs to be diluted in something like coconut oil, rubbed on the chest may act as a cough suppressant and an expectorant, which basically means it helps loosen up the mucus. So it makes the cough more productive. Um, however, it uh, should not be ingested. So um, again, it's one of those uh, essential oils change very dramatically when you go from topical or aromatherapy to, to ingestion and eucalyptus oil, um, is potentially quite toxic ingested. Um, so that's another, uh, sort of natural approach to, to the cough part. Um, and then the, the sort of third most common symptom is muscle and joint pain. Um, again, that acetaminophen for the fever, uh, might be helpful, but if your fever is not too high and you're trying to ride out the fever, but your joint pain is really high, um, one option, this is a for sure ask your doctor first, uh, is to take CBD. Do not take an inhaled for application of CBD. This is definitely an oral <laughs> application time. Um, there have been some animal studies of acute respiratory distress syndrome that have shown that CBD was helpful. In all of those studies, the CBD has been applied via injection. Um, so it's it's again, we're sort of talking in this like, ooh, you know, when you're talking about an intervention, um, you can't necessarily draw a straight line between animal models and humans. You can't necessarily draw a straight line between an injection versus oral application. It probably implies, and the reason why I put this in here is that um, CBD is, if it's helpful in animal models of acute respiratory distress syndrome, including septic shock, um, it's unlikely to be harmful in humans. Um, but again, this is now we're getting into supplement territory, check with your doctor, check with your doctor, check with your doctor. Um, and then the other, the other thing that I think has the potential to help the muscle and joint pain, if you happen to have a juve red light therapy device at home, um, that may help symptomatically. It's not going to help you, um, kill virus, um, 
an infrared sauna is not going to do that either. Um, but it may be able to help, you know, uh, there is quite a bit of study showing that the red wavelengths and near infrared wavelengths that Juve delivers can help in other situations of pain has not been tested in infection. Um, but it's, it's not going to hurt and it, it, it may help if you happen to already have one at home. It's interesting. I actually referenced um, our podcast on Juve and in in general, just anti-inflammatory being supportive of immune function in the webinar that I did yesterday. Um, so I think that that is interesting, but also understanding that there's nothing that we can say that we haven't said before about there's nothing that you can do from a lifestyle perspective that's going to prevent you from getting something. Like we've mentioned this a thousand times, like you can paleo as hard as you can. And sometimes that's not going to change anything. But if you're looking for things to be supportive of anti-inflammatory um, lifestyle so that then you can optimize your health and support your immune system as much as possible for potentially fighting infection, the show that we did two weeks ago is definitely the place to get like a concentration of that information. That's what that show is all about. Yeah. Um, and the, the four main action items out of that were get enough sleep, manage stress, uh, have plenty of low and moderate intensity activity in your day and avoid nutrient deficiencies. Um, those, those were the main take home messages. And, you know, especially as we're about to get into, um, some of the supplement questions, I think it's really important to emphasize the sort of magnitude of effect from the lifestyle things, hand-washing, versus supplementation. And I know we've, we've received a lot of supplement questions. Um, I, I want to emphasize that the magnitude of effect from supplements is very small. It's far more important to just avoid nutrient deficiencies and ideally get all the nutrients that we need from foods. Um, so just looking at the magnitude of effect, um, studies of influenza have shown that Proper and prudent hand washing can reduce infections by something like 90%. Effectively managing stress can reduce infection rates. This, these are in people who have been have um, cold viruses injected up their noses. Effectively managing stress can reduce infections by something like 85%. Getting enough sleep um, who signs is, up for that can reduce study? infections by something like 80%. Who signs uh, up for like... <laughs> somebody who wants six days isolated in a hotel room, I guess. I really wants to get away from, from their family. I'm assuming they pay participants. I wouldn't sign up for a cold virus injected up my nose unless I was getting some good money. Um, yeah. Or I guess really needed six days isolated in the hotel room. <laughs> there are times. Okay. Um, getting um, moderate intensity exercise again is a 70% effect. High dose vitamin C supplementation is a 10% effect. So, so I, I really want to emphasize before we before we jump into the supplements that um, your your best bang for your buck is still lifestyle and avoiding nutrient deficiencies. I personally have implemented more rigorous sleep habits this week. Like I don't know how many times we've had shows about sleep and people make jokes with me all the time because I've ter I've relative to what I would like to be, I will say I have terrible sleep habits. To the normal person, they probably wouldn't say that because um, I am getting eight hours, but I'm, I'm getting it too late. 
like I know that I'm getting it too late and my my body does better on the days that I go to bed earlier. And so I need to be following my body's cues. Um, and that is the thing that I am working hard to implement as much as possible. Like our house is chaotic right now. There's, there's more like dirty dishes and clutter than are comfortable for me. I don't like clutter. Like, so it causes me stress, which causes me anxiety, right? Like I have all these things that I know aren't helping, um, knowing what we know, having been on the show. And so I'm like, okay, the one thing I can control is going to bed earlier and getting more sleep. Like that's what I'm going to prioritize and I'm going to focus on that. And I'm going to feel good about it when I accomplish it. And so I encourage you listeners to find the thing that you can do, right? Like be aware of all the things that are making you stressed out and anxious and see what you can do about it and accept what you can't so that you can then focus on like what is in your control and what you can focus on and what you can do best. Cause we're going to talk about supplements. And I know that what people are going to do is like run out and buy a bunch and take a bunch and hope and like cross their fingers and be like, okay, this is the thing. Um, and honestly, I, I don't think from my personal experience and Sarah, I, I believe that the science supports this, although I won't speak for you that jumping into taking a, bunch of stuff all at once. Um, and then like not taking it as soon as COVID-19 is over is not the like ideal thing for your body. Um, (laughs) (laughs) I mean, depends on the thing, depends on the thing. Right. I mean, Um, a short use of like, you know, fish oil intentionally short term, we, we know that there's science in that, but I just mean like we've talked before, I think it was just the COVID podcast about, you know, like increasing your vitamin C by a bunch and then just stopping it altogether is not ideal, right? So what we don't want you to do is listen to some of the um, supplements and be like, okay, I'm just going to take all the things and think that that's going to solve all the problems because it won't. Honestly, like the, the biggest thing that the biggest message that I can impart is like, it's okay to feel anxious and you have to know that you're doing that in order to calm yourself down and be like, okay, what can I do? to feel better. Like Sarah's talked about the science on meditation. You know, I don't medicate, meditate. I can't do it. But what I can do is like self-regulate. That's a thing that, um, is easier for me. So I just want to encourage you to do that as much as possible. I don't know what got me on this tangent. Um, no, it's a, it's a, actually, I don't think it's a tangent. I think it very directly leads into our supplement questions and, and it's because the main take-home message I want to make sure is abundantly clear before we answer specific supplement questions is that um, I I think that there is uh, – part of it is it, we are conditioned now in our modern society that when we don't feel well, we take a pill. And even in alternative health, there's lots of food-based supplements um, as well as sort of functional functional medicine doctors love to give supplements. Um, There's a lot of, uh, you know, sort of organ supportive supplements that are are standard in autoimmune disease care with an integrative or functional medicine doctor. Um, And so it's sort of natural to like look to what's the the pill that I can take that's going to fix this or is going to make me immune or make me get better faster. And in part, nothing that we're going to talk about, even the things that might provide some modest benefit have been tested in COVID-19. We don't have that data. We're making sort of a, a best guess based on influenza, common cold, and upper respiratory tract infection studies. But also... Um, there's no pill that is going to substitute for going to bed early or 
uh, getting out for a walk or, or doing an at-home workout or um, doing something to, to reduce stress levels. Like those are all, those are the 90, 80 to 90% effect things. Um, there's, there's no pill that's going to, uh, other than a vitamin D supplement, if you're vitamin D deficient, that's going to be about a 50% effect. There's nothing else that you're going to be able to take that's going to touch that. And so please keep in mind that even if we talk about supplements that may be beneficial, we're talking about very small effects compared to the lifestyle factors. Boom. Do we even need to continue that, do we show? need to actually, I don't even know. I don't even know if we need to do anything else. I think we do. Yeah. All right. Um, I have seen uh, silver solution, colloidal silver claims all over the internet. Um, my social media is exploding with questions about colloidal silver. Um, the FDA has sent cease and desist letters to um, bigger name um, people who are, are claiming their silver solutions will will kill coronavirus. Um, you know, the FDA is overwhelmed. They don't have the staff to be sending cease and desist letters to you know, little doctors who, who have some white labeled supplements that they sell, right. Who are making similar claims. So, uh, the answer is no, that's not going to help. Um, in fact, um, the, the data on colloidal silver or silver nanoparticles is incredibly mixed on whether it has any antimicrobial benefits whatsoever. The best science is in a topical application for preventing infections in like burn patients. Um, but there have been studies of colloidal silver products showing absolutely no antibiotic activity. Um, and the, the couple of studies that have looked at viruses have shown no antiviral activity. And it's also really important to know that uh, you can overdose on silver and it can be very toxic. And what is a uh, upper limit seems to be context dependent. There are, um, the literature is full of case studies of people who have become critically ill from silver overdose, from taking what shouldn't have been too much silver. And it seems to be because there's a very high range in absorption rates from person to person. So uh, I'm not touching silver stuff with a 10 foot pole. I literally wish you could see my face right now, which I know I've said on a recent podcast as well, but I'm like... <laughs> I'm, I'm also not taking silver and I'm just going to leave that right there. <laughs> yeah. That was the most close to a rapid fire answer I think I've ever given on this podcast. I also just want, I just want some props for that one because the next one's not going to be. So I just want to acknowledge that I did give one reasonably <laughs> length answer before I give another really long one. You know what we call that in my um, house, right? It's it's seeking praise for what no. you should be doing, and we use should intentionally because it's supposed <laughs> to be a joke, right? Like, <laughs> like when Matt's that's like, "That's exactly what that's exactly what I just did." Yeah. Exactly when Matt's like, "Have you seen that the laundry is done?" <laughs> like, <laughs> yep, I have. Um, as a person who is highly motivated uh, by other people expressing appreci appreciation, I no Matt, I'm with you. I'm with you on that one. Um, okay, so elderberry. Let's talk about elderberry because um, there is, there are two different schools of thought online. Um, I have written about the study showing that elderberry can reduce the severity of symptoms and duration of relevant viral in infections, including influenza, common cold, and upper respiratory tract infections. And there are um, some incredibly smart people who are recommending against elderberry um, due to uh, concerns that it may 
uh, either increased severity of or perhaps increased risk of what are called cytokine storms. So to get into this, I, th I think this is a really important topic to really talk about what what the research currently shows and what what uh, what it doesn't. So uh, for starters, um, elderberry has never been tested as a preventative for viral infections. Um, so there is no evidence of uh, that it should be taken uh, just in case we get exposed to something. Um, and in fact, it is never the safety has never been tested long term. The longest studies I can find in humans are 12 weeks. Um, and most of the studies uh, that have been done in terms of viral infections are taking elderberry for five days at first sign of infection. And those are the studies, um, including a meta-analysis. Um, so, you know, there have been enough studies to do meta-analyses and our, our long-term listeners know that I love me a meta-analysis. Um, so those, that is the protocol for these studies, taking at first sign of infection and taking for five days. And it shows that it can shorten the duration and reduce severity of symptoms of Again, what are relevant infections, but remembering what I said earlier is you can't necessarily draw a straight line between research in influenza and common cold and upper respiratory tract infections to COVID-19. But we can we can sort of look at this and go, um, you know, this this these seem like relevant infections. Like let's, you know, th this is where this is our starting point in terms of information. So where does the cytokine storm concern? come from. There have been a couple of research papers published in the last week um, that are showing uh, that a certain... Uh, okay, actually, let me take a step back. What the heck is a cytokine? Uh, a cytokine is a, a chemical messenger um, that uh, the immune system used to communicate with itself or cells in the body used to communicate with the immune system. And there are dozens and dozens and dozens of different cytokines. Um, there's, in fact, uh, six different families uh, of molecules that fall under cytokines, of which there are many, many, many members of each family. Um, and they basically are um, signaling molecules. So what they do is they send a signal to a different type of cell through receptor binding and there are cytokines that are pro-inflammatory that increase inflammation, and there are cytokines that are anti-inflammatory that reduce inflammation. So basically, these are our molecules that are our immune system used to communicate with itself. It's how our immune system ramps up an inflammatory response when a foreign invader is detected, and it's also how our immune system controls an inflammatory response. So there are certain cytokines that are well known for being what would be called potently pro-inflammatory. So that means when they're released into your body, right? You're, um, let's say you got um, a, a scratch and it's getting infected. Um, your body is trying to um, alert, you know, that local part of your body is trying to alert systemically that this is, this requires a, a intense inflammatory response. The types of pro-inflammatory cytokines that might be secreted in that situation are some of these really, like they're, they're really strong signals. Um, they stimulate uh, immune cells to reproduce. They stimulate immune cells to come to the area, to leave the bloodstream and go into the tissue. Um, and you've heard us talk about probably these on the show before, because um, I used to study these again when I was a researcher, interleukin-6 and tumor necrosis factor alpha being the, the two probably 
best understood, um, very, very pro-inflammatory cytokines. So a study out of, um, out of Wuhan, China, um, uh, showed that in their severe cases, very elevated interleukin-6 was a predictor of mortality. And so um, because of, of this, and there's also been some cytokine profiling done um, of those patients with COVID-19, um, they are showing that uh, this strong production of inflammatory cytokines is potentially contributing to the complications. So that the, even the term cytokine, uh, cytokine storm is a fairly new term. It didn't really start becoming used uh, either colloquially or in the medical literature until about 2005. I mean, even though it's its first instance is probably in the early 90s. Um, but it's basically referring to a... Um, a contributor to the immune system overactivation that is causing acute respiratory distress syndrome and uh, multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. Um, but it's not the only way that you can get to acute respiratory distress syndrome and multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. So there are what these researchers are trying to say in these cytokine storm studies is that perhaps these people with elevated cytokines, if we can test that in a blood test of critically ill COVID-19 patients, these might be ones that could benefit from immunosuppressants like steroids, um, as opposed to this sort of broad um, recommendation that steroids not be used unless indicated for some other health, uh, pre-existing health condition. So it's important to understand what that is, because a cytokine storm is also how um, influenza can become a life-threatening uh, and, and deadly infection. So um, there, it, to, to sort of say that the cytokine storm thing is uh, unique to COVID-19 is untrue. Um, and also it, what the researchers are trying to do is try to figure out the best treatment protocols. Okay, so elderberry, where does that fit in? So most of the studies that have looked at elderberry in influenza, common cold, and upper respiratory infections basically have attributed the effects. Elderberry is one of the highest sources of anthocyanins, a type of polyphenol, um, which have antiviral, antibacterial, and anti-inflammatory properties. But there may be a immune boosting effect as well. And this is... Um, been shown in two different in vitro studies where they've basically taken human blood cells, white blood cells. Um, they've taken right, taken blood sample, take the cells, um, uh, add elderberry to the cells, and then measure how the white blood cells that are already in the blood uh, produce inflammatory cytokines. And here's where um, here's where people are are recommending caution with elderberry. In these two in vitro studies, um, they're uh, one was about a, a 200-ish fold increase in interleukin-6. That's a lot. Um, and then one was a 50-fold increase. The other one was a 60-fold increase in, in tumor necrosis factor alpha, which is also a lot. Now, those studies were done in what are called naive cells. So the cells were just removed from the blood and stimulated with elderberry and showed that it ramped up an immune response, or at least ramped up inflammatory cytokines that should then trigger an immune response. There ha was an in vitro study uh, done in 
uh, human macrophages, where they uh, added elderberry, sort of similar protocol, but they also added lipopolysaccharide, which stimulates inflammation. And what they showed in that study is a 60% reduction in interleukin-6 and a 52% reduction in tumor necrosis factor alpha, as well as reductions in some other relevant um, inflammatory molecules, um, including cyclooxygenase 2 and inducible nitric oxide synthase. So, um, so I, I want to be, I want to walk this line here because there are these two studies in naive human cells showing that elderberry may drive pro-inflammatory cytokines. Um, whether or not that's contributing to um, the sort of anti-flu effects of elderberry is unknown. Um, there's also a study showing that it's, you know, I, there's a lot of studies showing in animal models that it's anti-inflammatory. In human cells, this is the only study I could find that sort of was as a similar type study showing this decrease now in, um, in pro-inflammatory cytokines. And in actual humans, I could only find one study that measured tumor necrosis factor alpha or interleukin-6. And this was in healthy postmenopausal women who took elderberry for 12 weeks, and they had no change in their tumor necrosis factor alpha or interleukin-6 levels. So at this point, uh, we can say, you know, unregulated uh, production of pro-inflammatory cytokines may be contributing to the complications from COVID-19 that are leading to acute respiratory distress syndrome and multiple organ dysfunction syndrome. I mean, that is sort of uh, that has been well understood to be part of the pathogenesis of these critical care complications for a very long time. Uh, we have mixed data on whether or not elderberry drives up pro-inflammatory cytokines or reduces them, including, you know, a, a the one somewhat relevant study in healthy women. So keep in mind, those those are women who were not subjected, they didn't have cold virus injected up their nose in the study. So this is, again, a, a study where there's not the added stimulus of an infection. So what is the conclusion? Um, I uh, There's not enough data to say that elderberry is going to be harmful. There's no data suggesting that elderberry is going to increase uh, the severity of disease course with COVID-19. There's also no data showing it's going to decrease because it's never been studied. Um, and I want to also emphasize that elderberry has only ever been studied in this uh, intervention type model where it's given at first sign of, of disease and taken for five days. So it's, it's not a magic, it's not going to be a magic cure. Um, I can definitely say um, for our AIP listeners, especially if you're early on in your health journey and you've never taken elderberry before, now is probably not the time to try it out and see what it does to you. I can also say that I have personally, um, that the first time I took elderberry, uh, was actually with walking pneumonia a few years ago. And the day I started taking elderberry was the day I started, I turned around and, uh, stopped getting worse and worse every single day. And I have taken it ever since every time I get even a tiny bit of a cold or flu um, and have always uh, intuited that it is helping me. Again, these are not experiments that you can do. I can't just have the same infection again and do something differently and see if it was different. I can't run that experiment because uh, time only goes forward. So 
Um, I can tell you that I have elderberry in my house. And if I start feeling sick, I'm going to take it. And I can also tell you that I am by no means recommending this as an option across the board. I think the data is um, interesting, but still preliminary. And so I will also point out that you are also getting medical intervention. This is one, and I know mm-hmm. that you know this, but I'm just pointing it out. Like this is not an alternative to medical intervention. This is in addition to the same way that like healthy eating and good sleep is in addition right. to medical intervention. You weren't just trying to cure your pneumonia with elderberry syrup. No, no. Uh, I was trying to avoid having to go on steroids and I, I did avoid going on steroids with that. Um, and it was the first time I'd had a pneumonia in years where I hadn't had to go on steroids. Now, again, that could have been the day I turned around anyways. So, um, uh, I really, you know, I want to emphasize that again, this is a very small magnitude of effect and with COVID-19, it has never been studied. We just don't know. Um, that being said, if you are somebody who has found elderberry to be helpful to you personally over the long run, um, I, I don't agree with the current interpretation uh, that some other people are looking at these studies and thinking that it's going to be potentially dangerous. Um, I think we just don't know. That's, what, that's, that's where I think the science is. This is so, the part where I tell you that was not rapid fire, but you knew that. I know. I knew that. I knew that answer was going to be long. No, I think it's good because how many hours it took me to research it. Yes. And I have heard that question many times. And I think it's super helpful to understand um, not just the answer, but the why, which is what we always try to do here at the Paleo View podcast. <laughs> okay. So, uh, other people have asked about vitamin C and zinc and vitamin D. Um, I want to reiterate, um, with vitamin D, um, you're definitely supporting your immune system by fixing a deficiency or an insufficiency. It's a very, if you haven't tested since our vitamin D show, um, and you haven't done that yet, that's, that's a, that's a great action item right now. Um, talk with your doctor, uh, go over your levels. I mean, generally a functional medicine specialist would supplement with vitamin D if you were below 50 nanograms per milliliter. Um, but check with your doctor. Um, and that is, that is the, that is the supplement, um, for the context, right? Um, zinc supplementation has been shown to reduce infection rates by something like 30%. However, uh, 73% of Americans don't get enough zinc. And so if you've been listening to our show for a while and you know what great fans we are of things like shellfish and fish and organ meat and fruits and vegetables and, you know, nutrient density, um, I recommend keeping a food journal using an app like Chronometer or MyFitnessPal and see how much zinc you're actually getting and make sure you're choosing foods that are good sources of zinc. So avoid deficiency um, supplementation. There is such a thing as zinc toxicity. Uh, if you think you want to supplement, talk to your doctor. Um, but I don't think there's, I think there's a compelling reason to avoid deficiency and not a compelling reason to supplement. And same with vitamin C. Again, the, the magnitude effect in studies is reducing infections by eight to 10%. It's barely a strong enough signal to, to reach statistical significance compared to hand washing being 90%, right? So, um, again, with vitamin C, great food sources of vitamin C, like fruits and vegetables are also going to provide you 
fiber for a healthy microbiome that's also regulating your immune system. Lots of other important vitamins like vitamin E, which is used by your immune system, B vitamins, uh, minerals, um, and all of those really important antioxidant phytochemicals. So again, food sources are going to be great. Um, there's also been some recommendations for taking uh, glutathione, either S-acetylglutathione or liposomal glutathione, as well as vitamin A and K2 that have been floating around in our community. Um, I'm going to recommend in general, as a general rule of thumb, um, to be skeptical of claims uh, to take a supplement, um, especially if they're claiming that supplement would protect you against COVID-19 because that has not been tested, and especially if the person telling you to take that supplement is selling the supplement. Um, now, that doesn't mean they're all wrong, right? Vitamin D, if you're, if you're insufficient, definitely a good idea. Um, if you are a person who, uh, doesn't recycle glutathione, well, glutathione is your body's sort of main antioxidant enzyme. Um, it's very common in people with autoimmune disease to not produce enough glutathione. I've actually done a genetic screening through MaxGen to show that I am a very poor, uh, glutathione producer. Um, but there's no evidence that taking glutathione will reduce infections or infection severity or vitamin A or K2. They're, they're actually really important immune health nutrients. Again, food sources um, and avoiding deficiency is, is the action item. Um, and in terms of glutathione, there was one study in 2007 in uh, 10 patients uh, with acute respiratory distress syndrome that took not glutathione, but N-acetylcysteine, which supports glutathione recycling in the body. Um, and that showed that they actually had improved intracellular glutathione levels and improved outcomes in that study. It's a very small study. Um, I'm, I don't think that it's strong enough data to be actionable. Um, but if you are somebody who struggles with autoimmune disease, talking about a glutathione or an N-acetylcysteine supplement with your doctor is definitely worthwhile, um, especially if you you know, have continued to struggle with inflammation, um, despite the autoimmune protocol diet and lifestyle. Um, but that's, that's none of those is strong evidence that is going to be particularly helpful here. We're, we're really talking about more broad strokes. Um, and so, you know, overall, I, I think that, um, in terms of supplements, vitamin D in the context of insufficiency is the actionable one. Um, Everything else is uh, is is um, psychology. It is um, wanting the comfort of knowing there's a pill that we can take that's going to help. And the thing that's going to help is social distancing, hand washing, cleaning, getting enough sleep, managing stress, being active, eating a nutrient-dense diet, um, and following... Um, isolation and suggested quarantine protocols from local health officials. I agree. <laughs> um, I, I just want to emphasize the mentality part of it. I know we talk a lot about um, movement and sunlight and exercise and the importance of sleep. Um, but there is endless science on how stress negatively affects our bodies in a multitude of ways. And I have heard from countless people that this time of year, um, 
in this new environment that we're in, um, with different circumstances that none of us know how to handle, like all of it is leading to just an abundance, abundance of stress. And we're all feeling it. Like, you know, I mentioned earlier, we just, I have to own that feeling, acknowledge it, and then figure out like, okay, what am I going to do to try to help myself feel better about it. And so I just, I want to reemphasize whether you're feeling empowered and confident after this, or you're feeling overwhelmed, like, oh, I should be doing all of these things. And I'm not, none of that is, that's not a good, that's not a helpful mentality for you. And it's only going to create more problems. And I know sometimes when you're feeling stressed, you're like, oh my gosh, I'm not supposed to feel stressed. And now I feel even more stressed because I'm stressed. Like just take a deep breath. Um, you know, there are breathing techniques, there are um, that walk that is going to be beneficial for you. You might think I don't have time. I'm overwhelmed. I can't do it. Blah, blah, blah. Like just everybody can take 10 minutes to do some breathing or to go for a walk. I personally ordered among the many things that I've purchased on the internet, um, a yoga mat. I actually ordered two and I'm going to like have me and a boy and then another boy and another boy do yoga on the days that aren't nice outside so that we're still like getting exercise. We don't have yoga mats here in the house. I normally go to water aerobics. I'm not going to water aerobics right now. Um, And so what can I do in the meantime? And I think that's the thing is, you know, my mantra for 2020 was be a problem solver. And so my thought process is like, okay, how can I solve this problem? I obviously cannot control what is happening in the world, but there are things that I can control that I can feel better about owning and just knowing that you are in control of those things, feeling grateful for what you do have, whatever that may be. Um, most of us are having our families are healthy. And, um, you know, you, you can be appreciative and grateful for that. You can appreciate this extra time that you're getting with your family as much stress and burden that it might be adding. Um, the more things that you can be grateful for, the more it's going to help you calm down and de-stress. I mean, even just, I practiced a little bit of gratitude yesterday afternoon because I was feeling so overwhelmed and stressed. And I was like, you know what? I'm I'm grateful for the opportunity to, to be able to do these things. I'm grateful mm-hmm. that, you know, blah, 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 blah. And I walked through a couple of things that I personally am grateful for. And it can be little things like, mail is still being delivered, guys. Yeah. <laughs> Matt is still out there bringing you all of your packages that you're ordering online. Be grateful trash for that. Trash is still being picked up. Yep. Trash is still being mm-hmm. picked up. Grocery stores are still open. Like these, there are little things that we can all be grateful for. And so the more that you practice those and say them either to yourself or, you know, out loud to your spouse, to whomever it is, the, the better you will feel. I know that it sounds ridiculous, but honestly, it has a calming effect. And the reason that I had to practice gratitude yesterday is because I have a my watch is like a heart rate monitor and it told me that my heart rate was high. And the only thing that I was doing was stressing. Like I, I was like feeling overwhelmed. I'm like, okay, (laughs) like this is serious. I need to take some breaths. I need to like do some gratitude and I had no problems for the rest of the day. So I hope that that's helpful. I know I feel better with the information that you've provided, Sarah. I know it's taken a lot of time to pull together, um, all of this research between, you know, the original show and these follow-up questions, um, I, I know how much time and, and effort you've put into this research. And I, I just want to speak for all of us listeners to you, how thankful we, we are for your science-based um, 
information that provides education instead of, you know, um, claims of solving problems and also not mass hysteria, like the, the balanced science approach, um, I personally am endlessly grateful for. So thank you. Um, well, and I should tell our listeners as we wrap up here, um, a long, a long episode, but, um, I think it was important to get all of this out this week. Um, we will do as many COVID-19 specific podcasts as needed um, throughout this uh, pandemic. So if you have more questions that, um, or as the situation continues to evolve and we continue to understand more, um, you know, I'd like to not do one every week if we can get away with it. But if we, if we need to, if there's more questions that we need to answer um, we will continue to provide this resource to all of our listeners. Um, so thank you again, uh, at, whether you're a first-time listener or you've been with us for uh, eight years. Um, thank you again for all of your support, for leaving your reviews uh, wherever you listen to this podcast, um, for shopping through links in our newsletters and on our uh, websites, which helps uh, to support us through affiliate programs and just generally uh, being an awesome and supportive person for us online as well as in your communities. I want to say I, I totally echo that. And it has been a calming factor for me to be with you as a community. And I'm sure you as a listener are feeling that connection with us. Um, Sarah and I are both very much motivated by helping others. So thank you for all of those things. Yes, but also for just existing so that we have an outlet to educate and share and all of those things. Because for us, those are the things that fill our cup, so to speak, as mm -hmm. you know, as much as um, it's a lot of work. It's also like, I feel accomplished in knowing that I helped you today. And I hope that um, that connection that we have continues for a long time. Um, <laughs> it's it's a changing world that we're in. But um, thank you for for being a part of it with us for all this long time. It's I don't know, I'm getting schmoopy. So just moving on. Thanks for listening. And we'll be back next week. Is that the kind of moving on you're thinking of? <laughs> yeah. For a moment there, it looked like I had a real heart and I might hug someone and it got awkward. No, you can't hug social distancing. <laughs> Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. Okay. Now you sound muted. Now I sound muted? Well, I don't know. It was quiet. Oh, I was trying to be quiet so that you could okay. finish All right. the thing. Well, it which was. You probably it was don't quiet. even remember where you were. Okay. I'm just going to take us to the quiet. next question. I know. Okay. So great. Okay. <laughs> In the definition of, like, temperature of this mess, I'm going to say it's hot. I'm going to say it's a hot mess. <laughs> Do you think anyone listened to the end of it? It's going to be like an hour and 40 minutes by the time it's all edited together. I think so. They'll listen to it in chunks. Like this is, I mean. We had, we couldn't, we couldn't do two episodes out of this. It had to all go out this week. Like I just. Yeah, I mean, just people are, they want the information. And yeah. I, even if they've like, 
I, I was told that people listen to the podcast multiple times before too. You know what I mean? Like people mm -hmm. are just trying to um, get information to feel confident. Yeah. And I think a lot of it too is um, myth busting. Actually, this will be an interesting, I don't know if we want to put it in a blooper or what, but let me ask you a question. No, drinking bleach does not cure COVID-19. How about holding your breath for 10 seconds? If you can no, do that. It's, it's not a diagnostic. <laughs> Uh, it's not going to tell you if you can hold your breath for 10 seconds, you might still have COVID-19. If I have to hear my kids say that one more time, I'm like, where are you hearing this stuff? Stop. Just stop. Uh... Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.